Okay, well, what's happening here is actually an improv exercise. Thank you very much. Um, one of the first things you do in improv theater, uh, and my son is really involved in musical theater. He's really gifted as an actor. I wish I had just a, you know, an ounce of his talent. Uh, but one of the first things you learn to do in improv is to accept the gifts. Accept the gifts of what your fellow actors, your fellow musicians are offering you. That improv, you know, I started out with, just with a ball right here, you know, by myself. And uh, that was interesting maybe for like a second. It's like, oh, he brought a ball. I wonder what's going to happen, right? Uh, but it really got interesting when you had to pay attention, right? And you got involved, And that's the thing about improv is improv is not a solo thing. It's not a solo activity. Improv is an ensemble activity. It's something that we do together, whether we're a jazz group uh, and we're sort of, you know, kicking it over to each other. Okay, you got the guitar solo now. You got the drum solo now. You got the bass. And we're in this together. And did you think about anything when you when the ball was going around? Did you remember anything? Have you seen this before somewhere? Has anyone ever seen this at a concert? Seen this at a baseball game? Right. So you're also in improv drawing on a tradition. It's like, oh, wait, I recognize this. Uh, there's kind of ways to do this. I know what, what's happening here, right? Uh, but that's the thing about improv is you don't really know what to do unless you know what story you're in. You don't really know what to do unless you know what story you're in. And when you and I are baptized into the church, uh, and this was uh, Rowan Williams, uh, Bishop of Canterbury, said this. Uh, There should be a slide up there. There you go. When you enter and are baptized into the church, you enter into the church's performance of the story, an ecclesial drama the redemptive drama of what God is up to in the world to reconcile all things to himself through Jesus Christ, right? That's the story we're in. And what I'd like for us to talk about and think about for a few minutes today and discuss around our tables is how do we relate to the story? I want to suggest there's two important ways that we relate to the story. That first of all, As we gather for worship, we reenact the drama of the story. I mean, think about it. We break the bread. We drink the wine. We dramatize what Christ has done for us in offering his body for us, in offering his blood for us. We participate in the drama of baptism that it's really about the story we're in is re-narrating our lives in terms of taking off the old costumes, the old ways of being human, all the ways that, that our lives were deformed by sin, all the ways of doing business, all the ways of doing entertainment, all the ways of doing our sexuality, all the ways of managing our money, all those old ways of being human that are deformed by sin, we're taking the old self off, putting to death the old self. That's baptism. And putting on the identity of Jesus. That's the way Paul puts it. Put on Jesus. Put on Christ. Learn Christ, right? And so in worship, 
we're reenacting that story in baptism, in the Lord's Supper, in confession of sin and assurance of pardon. We are reenacting the drama of the gospel. Now, that's got a very ancient rooting in the covenant people of God, doesn't it? Because from the very beginning, it's not just about, hasn't just been about the worship of God, it's been about the witness of who God is to all the families of the earth. That God calls a people to himself for the purpose of reconciling the world to himself, the purpose of mission. What I'd like to think about today is what does it mean to embody the story? We like to talk that way, some of us, about being part of this bigger story, uh, that our identity and our life choices now are about acting in character as God's people, as a Christ follower, that that's the story we're in. But I want to flesh that out a little bit more. I want to suggest that there are some resources in the episodes of the story that actually there are at least six gestures that should mark our acting in character. That, that six gestures might help us think about a bit more robustly what it means to make disciples, what our discipleship ministries are about. Because, you know, I think our discipleship ministries in some ways have been kind of like me standing up here hitting the ball by myself or maybe Jim and I standing up here kind of hitting the ball to each other in a one-on-one format where the focus of our discipleship ministry has been to learn Bible study skills or, and to learn prayer. And maybe if we're really radical to learn how to share our faith with other people, Right? But what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4, about what it means to learn Christ, it's really interesting. He says, take off the old person and put on the new. And the very first topic of discipleship lesson at Ephesus is actually not about worship. It's about speaking the truth to your neighbor. It's about stop stealing Work with your hands so that you'll have to give to other people. In other words, discipleship is about renewed image bearing in every dimension of life. It's holistic. Yes, it's about learning to pray. Yes, it's about Bible study skills and evangelism. But it's also about the way we go about starting new businesses the way we engage with human resource services in our community that we partner with in terms of municipalities, the way we partner with schools. It's about families. Every dimension of life, of putting on the new practices, of learning Jesus, of how do we signify our life under the reign of God in our work, in our intergender relationships, in our transgenerational relationships? Is there separation and alienation or is there reconciliation between the generations, between race, between socioeconomic class? That's the kingdom, right? That's the new creation that we're learning to put on. So we relate to the story, I want to suggest, in two ways. 
when we gather to worship, we reenact the story. We dramatize the story. But that actually that reenactment has a purpose to train our affections like an improv class to be ready when we go into our jobs, when we go into our schools, when we go into our extended family relationships, and every one of us could tell a story of brokenness in our families today around our, around our tables, that when we go into those parts of image-bearing, that we actually have a clue about how to do improv, how to improv the story and enact the story of redemption in that area of image-bearing. So just think with me for just a moment. We can put these six uh, gestures up. We started today with an improv exercise about accepting the gifts. And that's where the story starts, isn't it? Creation. Everything is made. What did God say on the sixth day? Very good, right? But if you're like me in your ministries, you're probably stuck every day in a host of problems. Think about it. Um, a lot of the people that we're ministering with and that we're engaged with live in problem-saturated worlds. You and I. I don't know what your news feed is like today, but I'll just tell you, emotionally, I am like pretty overwhelmed because I have friends in Puerto Rico today. I'm overwhelmed um, with the political situation of our country. I'm overwhelmed with earthquakes in Mexico. And that's just stuff that's on the news. That's not what I face when I walk into the office, what I face when I get phone calls from my extended family, right? So one of the things that I love about the Surge Network is that you're reminded, oh, wait, this is improv. We're not in this alone. We can connect with each other. This is about an ensemble performance of the gospel in the Phoenix area. Uh, if I mess up on stage, if I don't know my lines, hey, guess what? Someone's going to step in and feed me a line. Someone's going to do a gesture. They're going to hit the ball to me. I'm going to have another opportunity, right? But here's the thing. Start at the beginning of the story. So in worship, we begin with praise. We come into worship and we begin with praise because that is where the story starts. Things, God has made the world good. And so it trains us in our improv to look not just at the problems, but to look at the assets. Think about the blessings of your family history. Do um, a drive through your neighborhood and think about the parks and the schools and the nonprofits. Think about the hospitals. Think about the, uh, the exercise facilities. Think about the places where people are gathering together and they're, they're uh, think about the assets. Do an asset inventory. That's the place to start because that's where the story begins at creation. And we're trained to do that in worship, to begin with praise in worship. And then when we go out to do improv into our communities, we accept the gifts. We do the asset inventory. But, of course, we come to the second chapter of the story. We really do need to be realistic and honest about the pain in our world. 
And so the second step in worship is confession. And where we would begin is to, with ourselves, to name the broken places in our own lives. Isn't that what Jesus taught us to do? Don't get the speck out of your brother's eye. Get the log out of your eye first, right? It's important for us to name the broken places in our community and to be honest about that. But God wants us to name the broken places in ourselves in worship, to be reminded of our own need for the gospel, our own need for forgiveness, right? So worship trains us for improv, and we go into our communities not as saviors. We go into our communities as neighbors who need the same grace, of the gospel, right? And so we do need to do those needs assessments. I was just with a group in, uh, uh, in fact, you met Chris Gonzalez earlier. Chris um, uh, invited me to be with a group of, of his leaders last night because one of the gifts they're receiving is that the city of Tempe has done this needs assessment about human services in Tempe. What a wonderful opportunity to understand, well, who are the marginalized in our community? Who is being pushed out? Where are the gaps in human services? That's really important to know, right? We're trained how to do that together in worship, through confession, through lament. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be, right? But then there's the third chapter of the story. And that is in in readings from the Old Testament, reading God's promises to Abraham, Reading God's promises to Israel and the way that he talks about Israel as a holy priesthood, a royal nation, right? Um, There we realize that God gives blessings to his people in covenant relationship. He gives his people high status. He calls Israel elect. He calls them chosen. But here's the thing about the use of status in the biblical story. There's a unique way in which the redemptive script uses power and uses privilege and uses status. It's always so that we might be a blessing to others, right? So, yes, God is giving incredible promises to his people. He's giving them land. He's giving them resources that will sustain life, that will bring flourishing to their communities. They're no longer in Egypt. They're no longer under the public works program of Pharaoh where they have to be slave labor. They have their own land, right? Why? So that we might be a blessing to the families of the earth. So in the third episode of the story, we do the readings from the law. We read the promises of God. Uh, We understand and hear God saying to us, you are my firstborn child. But we remember the purpose. We remember the mission so that we might be a blessing. And then we come to the high moment in worship. The high moment in worship of the pronouncement of forgiveness. The high moment of the proclamation of the gospel. The high moment of assurance of pardon the high moment of partaking the bread and wine, that we are free. We don't have to be slaves anymore to the power of sin in our lives, but because the Spirit has been given to us, we're free, right? 
But what that's going to do is, is shape us in terms of learning Christ to announce that gospel, to improv that gospel in our communities in the ways in which Christ did. There's a story I've learned a lot from uh, a theologian named Samuel Wells. And he tells a story about how Jesus never blocked anyone. You know, earlier when we were doing the, the beach ball, you know, you could have just let it land on the table. You, couldn't have, you could have just not accepted the gift, right? And the whole thing would have fell flat. You could have said to yourself, I don't want to do that, right? When that happens in improv, everything comes to a screeching halt, right? You're not interdependent. You're not an ensemble. You don't have a shared sense of mission, right? Um, It's interesting. Jesus never blocked anyone. But he always redirected their gifts towards true, whole humanity, Let's talk about an example for a minute. Uh, Sam Wells tells this story about a Russian concert pianist. True story. About to have a concert. And this little girl is with her mother sitting on the front row. She's just now being introduced to the piano. She's just, there's such wonder because she is so excited about learning the piano and about going to a concert So she gets up out of her chair. She runs up on the stage, and she sits down at the piano in front of the whole crowd, right? Now, the pianist had a choice. He could have blocked. He could have called security. We're not having this, right? But instead, he chose improv. He went out on the stage. He sat down next to the little girl. And she was, you know, plucking out the different keys. She was doing the different notes. He put his arms around her, and he started playing a bigger melody. He started incorporating her notes into his music. He started redirecting the sound and creating harmonics in relation to what she was doing, guiding her towards a bigger melody, towards the bigger story, towards the beauty of full humanity, right? And that's the way Jesus dealt with tax collectors. That's the way Jesus dealt with prostitutes. That's the way Jesus interacted with the poor, with the Samaritan. He didn't block them. He didn't say, get these people out of here. That's not the script that he was on. He was about redirecting the gifts. That's what repentance is all about. The call of repentance is a call towards true humanity. It's a a redirection of gifts. I have a student at seminary. We were talking about this in our city ministry class. He's working for UPS at the time to get himself through school. He says, now, wait a minute, Dr. Perry. He says, hang hang on just a minute. My, My coworker, we're like putting stuff up in the warehouse the other day. And he said to me, he said, let's go to the strip club. Now, I don't know, but I think I should block that. I think I should block that. I said, well, hang about just a minute, Brian. What, what, um, what do you think your friend really wants? What do you think he really wants? He wants to spend time. 
He wants to be. Now, the way he knows how to do that is to invite you to the strip club. That's the old humanity. We mess it up. We don't know how to deal with the way God has made us as image bearers. We have these longings in us for Eden, and we go about it all the wrong way. So what could you do to redirect the gift, Brian? Hey, you know what? There's a new taco place down in the loop. You know, I can't go to the strip club, but would you like to get some tacos after work? That's the Jesus way. That's redirecting the gifts, right? Um, The ball came to you. You redirected it. It's part of the ensemble of improving the gospel together. And that's step number five. The episode of the church, of working together, right? In worship, that comes when we all bring our spiritual gifts together. When we're able to participate together, we offer a word of testimony. We are able to read the scriptures. We're able to sing together. We bring our money, our offerings, and we share them together so that we can do more together. And then in places like Surge Network and others, Uh, We're making partnerships out in the community. We're learning to work together, right? This kingdom project is not about brand recognition of your church's name. It's about Jesus. It's about the kingdom of God in Phoenix. And that's a lot bigger than your denomination, than your nonprofit organization. It's so big that the only way we can signify it is if we do something together. So we're shaped for that in worship when we bring our offerings together, when, we, when people can participate, and it's not just the professionals up front, right? But we're all offering something to God. The last part of the story, where the story comes together is the new creation. That's the hope. That's that Edenic memory we have is a paradise of the way the world ought to be, a, a royal garden right, where our efforts are productive in the world. And we get a little taste of that from time to time. And the parables of Jesus would call us to celebrate those little foretastes. Do you remember the uh, parable of the lost coin? Parable of the lost son? The parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15? Every single one ended in a party. No, we must celebrate, the Father says. And isn't it incredible, not just in terms of the forgiveness of sins, of of returning home after a desolate life, right? A life of dissolution, coming back to one's own identity. But also, when you find a lost coin, you can buy your kids groceries. You can have something to eat for the next week, and they celebrated that. What would it be like if we had these little celebrations, these, these celebrate little redemptions, that when someone who's been jobless for months gets a job, we, we celebrate. We have a little party about that. When a marriage that has been stuck for years in alienation and estrangement, even maybe through a period of separation, when there's reconciliation, that we celebrate that. When there's a hundred days of sobriety, that we celebrate that, right? 
Growing up in the church, I heard lots of testimonies about when people came to Christ, and that is something we should certainly celebrate. What would it be like to hear testimonies about these other things too as a sign of the kingdom of God, of the new creation of the world as it is meant to be? So we relate to the story in two ways. We reenact the story in worship, but that prepares us to go out into the world and to improv the story. Gives us the instincts for how to accept the gifts, how to name the broken places, how to use our status, how to redirect the gifts, how to work together, and how to celebrate the little redemptions. Now, we're going to talk about something at your table. And the first thing I'd like for you to talk about, uh, Tim, do you have that up there? I want you to think about your church situation. What elements of reenacting the story in worship are strong and clear? It's good. You feel like, yeah, you know, that's something about our church I really love, that we do accept the gifts. We, we have a vibrant praise life. Maybe that's your experience, right? But what areas also, maybe you need to turn up the volume, in terms of shaping God's people for witness, wait a minute, we're kind of, we haven't really been emphasizing that episode of the story. Maybe it's time that we do that. I want you to talk about the six gestures in terms of, and we'll go back to the, uh, to the chart for you for your conversation. What's one thing that's really strong and you're thankful for? What's one thing where maybe, you know, we've, how could we do this? Maybe it's celebrate the little redemptions. Maybe we need to strengthen that. Um, maybe it's participation in terms of working together, that there's more opportunity for the whole congregation. I don't know what it is for you, but let's take a few minutes for table discussion and uh, just talk about those two things. What is strong and clear? What maybe could you turn up the volume on? And then we'll come back together. Okay. I hope you're having a good conversation at your table. I wanted to maybe take a couple of moments to let you hear between tables a little bit. Um, Over here on this side of the room, maybe what's something that uh, you felt like, uh, wow, we might need to turn up the volume a little bit and worship on that part of the story because that would help us in our our witness life. Uh, How did that conversation go at your table? Maybe on this side of the room. Please. All right. Uh, yeah, each part of the story, though, we're shaped in worship for that gesture and witness. And so there is a relationship between the two sides and uh, helping us be formed on the one side and then be improv on the other side. Other tables, yes. Okay. All right. That's great. I think one of the things that I've seen a struggle in, in my church is, and I don't know if this is a cultural issue across the board, if it's this way here in Phoenix, but I would say that, at least in the evangelical churches, that, you know, praise has been ramped up. Confession is like, whoa, wait a minute, let's not talk about that. What are you talking about? Sin, what is that, right? So, yeah, in terms of, of engaging the resources of our tradition, one of the uh, gentlemen at our table was talking about like a, a, pr- a prayer of confession from the Book of Common Prayer and how in, in, invariably when he d- put that in the liturgy, 
People would ask him, where's that prayer from? It was touching on something, right? When we leave gaps in the story, it it does create sort of pent-up demand. And I think there's pent-up demand about confession right now in our culture. Um, Something that, and and we do need to learn how to talk about it in a way that's going to connect. Uh, People don't, you know, really need to be blocked and be condemned. They need to be redirected towards the gift. But that is a call to repentance. And it's a call to repentance in every area of image bearing. All right, over here. That's, it's really interesting. That's a perfect segue. I mean, perfect. So thank you for that gift. I'm going to take that and run with that. Yeah. Jesus had a way uh, of, and this is the parable slide, Tim, um, of doing improv. And that was parables. Parables were a way to summarize the story but to shine light on a particular area of image bearing. And so Jesus would turn the light on um, economics and money and relations between the rich and the poor. The kingdom of God is like a rich man, right? And Lazarus. Um, He'd shine the light on uh, interracial relations, where the hero of the story is a Samaritan. The Samaritan is actually the the lawkeeper. He's the one who is loving his neighbor, right? So Jesus would say the, the kingdom of heaven is like, and he would invite us to look through the lens at a particular area of life. And invariably, in the way that he told the story, the story would be an invitation back to the original script, a call to respond, a call to enter into the kingdom way, a call to put off the old way, and a call into the new path, which was really the old path, the original path towards human flourishing, towards image bearing, right? And it's, it's really interesting. Jesus um, left no stone unturned. He talked about sexuality. He talked about uh, prayer. He talked about the use of privilege and status. He compared the Pharisee and the tax collector one day when they went into the temple, right? So whether it's our worship life, whether it's our worker life, whether it's our family life, whether it's our life as citizens, or even as gardeners, Jesus left no part of image bearing unturned. The kingdom of heaven is life. He's doing discipleship as improv. Now, I want to let you know that back to, what is your name, brother? What Will was saying earlier about the relationship between confession of personal sin and systemic sin, he's really putting his finger on something here, isn't he? Because there was a particular parable, and I don't know, you know, I really didn't like this parable. But I I don't think I was aware as to why I didn't like this parable. But Luke 18, the parable of the persistent widow, was a parable that I just really, I didn't like that. For two reasons, probably. One is it's about persistence in prayer, which is hard for all of us. And we all feel guilty about that. So uh, who wants to feel guilty? Let's stay away from that parable, right? 
Um, but then there's the other part of that parable. Persistence in prayer about what? Justice in our society. There was a widow who went down to a judge who neither feared God nor human beings and asked for justice against her adversary. And she kept coming every day. Can you just see it? In the ancient world, the courts were at the city gates. Can you see Jesus there with the disciples one day? And they just keep seeing every day. They see this lady. Here she comes again. And one day, Jesus just picks up the story. And he says, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like a widow who came to an unrighteous judge. And this judge finally comes to his senses one day and says, this lady's going to beat me down. This 85-year-old lady, right, she's just going to keep coming until I give her justice. And then Jesus turns the story around. He always has a surprise at the end of the, at the, end of the parable, right? And he says, how much more will your heavenly Father give to the elect justice? So the comparison is always from the lesser to the greater, right? The how much more. If an unrighteous judge is going to give justice because he gets tired, he gets worn out from this lady, how much more will a just God give justice? I have a former student named Michelle, and she's now my teacher. Um, is there, Tim, that slide with the, the march on it? Can you put that one up for us? There it is, yeah. Um, this is a picture. I'm in that crowd right there. Um, you maybe have heard... Uh, St. Louis is in the news lately. Uh, there's a lot going on between police and different parts of our community in St. Louis. And I got a call from Michelle. This was in 2014, and I taught Greek to Michelle. And she said, Dr. Perry? I says, okay, here this comes. Hang on. And uh, she said, we're going uh, to be doing a, a liturgical march of lament in our city. And she leads an organization called Faith for Justice. Uh, Recovering Biblical Activism is their tagline. And this was in March, and she was asking me if I would participate because there had been, within the first three months, 22 shooting deaths of African-American men in St. Louis for various reasons, many of them unarmed. Some of them were between different neighbors. Some of them between police and Uh, community people. And we were going to do this march of lament and march with the mothers of these young men who had been killed in our city. And we were going to take time at different places along the way. In fact, that we had little podiums like this. And uh, there were churches along the pathway. And we were going to hear the mother's cry of lament. And then we were going to join in lament. How long, O Lord? Why, O Lord? pleading to the God of justice for systemic change in our community. And it had to be something that would be not business as usual. We needed to block traffic. We needed to, of course, communicate with the police ahead of time, work this out together as a community. We're going on the anniversary of Dr. King's assassination on April 4th. We're going to march, but it's a liturgical march. It is a religious act. 
It is a praying with our feet, like this persistent widow. We're going to embody a living parable, and we're going to pray for justice. Right? Now, of course, this is, this is systemic change. But what we needed to do before we did the march together is ask for forgiveness of our own sins. Ask the hard questions. How are we complicit in this system of injustice? Let's examine our own hearts, right? Get the the log out of our own eye, right? So I did not like the parable of the persistent widow because it was touching on something in me a part of my life as a citizen that I really didn't want the kingdom of God to have anything to do with. So I have a hard question for you now to talk about around your table. Which parable do you not like? What part of image bearing is it about? Where is Jesus shining the light on that parable? As he says, the kingdom of heaven is like... And then what kind of response is Jesus calling you to make to the kingdom? All right, let's do a little business with God and with each other. What parable? Not really like that parable. Um, Think about what area of image bearing it's dealing with. Maybe it's economics. Maybe it's family life. Maybe it's issues of race or justice. Um, Maybe it's physical life. Um. And then maybe talk a little bit about the kind of response Jesus is calling us to make as we take off the practices of the old humanity and put on the practices of the new. Let's take a little few minutes around our tables. Um, Yeah, we don't have very long, so get going.